Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This week's guest is Nadine Kessler, Managing Director of Women's Football at UEFA. In a different setup compared to the other episodes we have made so far, we interviewed Kessler about her career as a professional footballer and the injuries that forced her to quit playing. Nadine Kessler has played football on the biggest stages. She has won the Euro with the German national team. She has title and great wins in the Frauen Bundesliga and in the Champions League. She has been awarded as UEFA's best player of the year, FIFA world's best player, and she has won the Ballon d'Or. In this episode, Kessler talks about where the women's game is today, what she sees next, and how she ended up where she is today. You are listening to their pitch, and this is the Nadine Kessler episode. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Dare Pitch. Today we have Nadine Kessler, Managing Director of Women's Football at UEFA on the podcast. Nadine, how are you doing today? I'm excellent, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, I hope I didn't butcher your name too hard. Maybe I got the English accent in there, but how do you pronounce it? You sound a bit German, I must say. <laughs> Tiny bit, no, no. It was it was already very good. Um, my name in German with a proper German accent would sound Nadine Kessler. Nadine Kessler sounds a bit harsher, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> But it makes sense. I like it. And I did I did the take you through you know what we're going to talk about a little bit earlier, and I told you that we have somebody who knows you very well, who's written a quote, taken their time, and you're going to guess who it is. So no pressure at all. I'll read it to you. I just leave the interview. Right? <laughs> oh, damn. We budged it in the beginning. <laughs> all right. We'll just um, I'll read it to you and then you'll guess. Um, I love to play with Nadine. She had a natural leadership. She was a great captain and inspiration how she fought back through all her setbacks. She's an absolutely family person, loyal, reliable, funny, spontaneous, And great to party with, Mallorca. She always makes fun of me because she was sweating so much during games, and I tried to avoid to hug her after we scored a goal. Anya <laughs> but she didn't let me. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, 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 that's correct. That's Anya. <laughs> what's What's the story behind the the sweating too much and avoiding a hug? 
I think Anya just sometimes was a bit sensitive and she felt like I sweated too much and I'm, you know, maybe I did, but it's fair enough to have a great goal celebration. I love to jump on people, but um, I think Anya didn't enjoy that too much because she was a bit wet afterwards. So uh, yeah, no, it was a, um, yeah, a running joke that I, that I, and it's true. I was like, um, quite sweaty in the game and you was like please hug the next person thank you very much <laughs> that's what happens when you give 110 percent, right <laughs> yes exactly well I'm, I'm happy you got it uh the first time um but also speaking of you know football career and, and playing football how, how come you started playing football as a, as a as a kid i was i think really born into it. I grew up in a football crazy family. My dad was the president of our local club. My brother played, my mom played for fun. We would spend, um, my sister didn't play, but she was a huge fan. So we would spend every weekend on the football pitch. My parents were running, let's say the club. And I did not have much choice other than to um, yeah, play alongside um, the adults match and just start playing with boys. Uh, since I can think, since I'm two years old, I guess, since I'm able to walk um, and was pretty much into this game, which is is really, I think, yeah, a big, big love of our family. How, how was it for you to you know, take that step from maybe maybe grassroots and signing your, your first professional contract? I never planned to. I'm, I mean, how can you plan? Uh, but I never really envisaged a professional career. All I knew was very early. I wanted to once play for my country. I must have been about 10 years old. And I just thought like watching all of these national team matches, that would be my ultimate goal. Um, but yeah, then, then just live evolves and you play and play and play and at a very early age you're going to be scouted um and yeah end up with your first national game when you're 14 um and then signing your first professional contract when i was 16 and i was lucky i was already back then able to have kind of a semi-pro career whilst i was still at school which was i think very unique uh even in germany not many not many players were able to to really uh, live off, off off playing football, so it, it was fantastic that I was able that I was able to experience it. And you talk about coming from from a from a family of football, and you know your mom and dad playing. How 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 do you think they experienced knowing that? Okay, that's our daughter out there signing a professional contract at sixteen, and then you know going out to represent your country. I think they are. They were their whole life very proud. I must say they were absolutely useless in the first negotiations with with my first clubs. My dad is the kind of nicest man who just is like, yeah, take care for free. Here you go. Um, uh, that, that I remember very well. And my mom was a bit tougher and just uh, helped me a bit to negotiate. But no, they were obviously super proud and um uh, my dream really became their dream. Uh, I come from a very rural area in Germany, a countryside, and I think it was really football that uh, opened our horizon. Uh, yeah, made us travel the world together as a family, made us great people from different countries. And um, so, yeah, for them, I guess, um, also uh, exciting part of their life uh, ultimately um, to live that football dream with me together. 
how was it how was it for you to know you know first time stepping on the field representing your country it was brilliant i had to work a long time to get there i would say um it was a tough time to become a german national team player we had a, to be honest super successful national team and also brilliant players back then i thought i would have deserved it a bit earlier if i'm honest but I also had to work harder. That is also true. I was very successful on the youth level. And I had back then, uh, after running through all the youth national teams already quite early, a significant injury with 18. I had already three surgeries, um, uh, severe cartilage damage and another stuff wrong in my knee. So it was already a surprise back then for doctors that I came back. And for me, of course, my biggest moment of of pride to to really then finally make it and play for Germany. You speak about these injuries. Did you ever, before you actually quit football, did you think about it when you were younger that, okay, like all these things are broken. Is it going to be worth it? Never. And I, I, even when it happened so many times, um, I always thought it was worth it. And I had some really severe injuries later on as well and uh, yeah, infections. And I think um, I'm the only woman with a cruciate ligament, by the way. I have every everything else is gone, but my cruciate ligament is there. So I'm the exception to um, this terrible injury we see so much in women's football. Um, but I always felt it was worth it to come back. I wasn't finished with my with what I wanted out of my career, I think I'm a bit all or nothing person. If I feel like I can't have an impact, then why would I have stopped? But I felt like I, this is not the finish line for me. And I loved it so much that, um, yeah, coming back was not a question, but, but the only way. But then eventually you did decide to, to hang up your boots. How, how, how was it making that decision? Was it hard? Uh, it was actually not hard because I couldn't walk anymore at the end of my career. It was quite traumatic, that whole experience. I had uh, by then 11 surgeries on one knee. I recovered from an infection. I had twice my kneecap dislocated, serious stuff. I literally was not able to walk anymore. And this happened after winning uh, the FIFA Ballon d'Or in the biggest moment of your life. Um, after, and that was my first time four years in Wolfsburg, really without an injury. So it was quite, um, yeah, emotionally very tough. Uh, not gonna lie. Uh, but if you cannot walk anymore, if you cannot handle your normal life, if you are limited as a young person to do normal things, um, then something, uh, changes in your mind and you quickly move on. I tried a year uh, and I, uh, of rehab and ran around all over Europe uh, amongst doctors, but it was just not possible. And still nowadays, I, I, I really, I can't play anymore. I'm, I'm proper invalid. I, I know the price that I paid, um, for, for my career. And I'm very happy because yeah, one door closes, another one opens and. Um, trying to stay in shape. Um, not that I am, but I'm trying to do a little bit of sport. So I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And when you were, were because of the injury, you were forced to quit your playing career. Did you, did you know that you would end up as the managing director of women's football at UEFA? <laughs> no, uh, quite honestly, I mean, probably back then, I, 
I knew UEFA, yeah, maybe it's the people who organized the Champions League and the Euro. Uh, and I think that, that honestly, that's what most people see and know. And okay, FIFA is the people who do the World Cups. I think that that's what was probably my knowledge back then. No, and I, I really had no plan. I, I um, wanted to find myself. I gave myself also a little bit of time to explore things, worked a lot in TV, um, commentating a lot. I had a lot of social projects. I finished my master's degree. I started coaching, worked at the German Federation a bit, and then started my work a bit with UEFA and FIFA as an ambassador. And then realized, oh, wow, it's actually quite fascinating, um, the world of football the cultural differences there are, the different problems there are within countries, but also the opportunities there are to make an impact uh, on a, on a, yeah, on an international level. Um, so it, I didn't plan it at all, but yeah, one day uh, an offer came in to join UEFA as an advisor. It was a time where they really wanted to build something. They wanted to relook really at things and put new emphasis on women's football and then I said, yeah, um, I, I try it. I, that sounds really interesting. I was for the first time planning to get back home to my family. They were super excited. And I was like, no, goodbye. I go to Switzerland. Um, so that was the real story. But um, yeah, very happy. I Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And, and now I'm going to chip in because... I'm I'm quite interested to know what you feel is the biggest privilege of being in your position in the women's game today. First of all, I think it's a privilege to be able to have a job that is really your everything and your passion. I think uh, I remember well when I retired and I had a lot of job offers. My dad is a is a, <laughs> a safety orientated German man. He thought. He told me, please take any of these jobs, just some security and safety. And I said, no, dad, I think the biggest privilege I ever had was to have a job that is fun. He didn't have that. My family didn't have that. Most people don't have that. They uh, do a job to feed their family or to whatever. So I always wanted that. And I, I feel like that's still um not playing football anymore and that's certainly the best job in the world but i still have a job that fulfills me truly with joy with passion and that i'm able on a european level to active actively change yeah uh women and girls lives for the better have an impact with my work that i can literally see the the stones that we are moving for a better future for women's football it just makes me not just excited, but uh, yeah, really proud. Speaking about, you know, the future that's going to come, especially for, for those, you know, professional players out there, there, there's a lot going on within the women's football game right now. It's evolving quite quickly and it's, it's taking all these steps. And, and, and as the sport grows, um, 
we can see, for example, that we're switching the qualifier system for, for big international tournaments to, for example, the Nations League. Have the big, you know, numbers that we've seen in the game between, you know, these well, the well-developed team consider uh, and the less maybe developed, you know, national teams, are they significant, like in taking part in deciding to get in a national team or a national league, a nations league? Sorry, getting that nations league or or what's like what was the the mind the mindset or the thinking behind um, nations league? So first of all, I think it's we may need to start earlier because I think we really um, strategically said we need to bring all our competitions onto the next level. I think, honestly, we could have done more in the past. I think what we changed in the last three years, changed the youth formats, we changed the Women's Champions League, put the Women's Euro on a different scale. Now the qualification system is next. was always part of a bigger picture plan, uh, we saw that the competition was not competitive enough. That's very uh, the, the, the truth. This um, can be improved through a format, but also in all honesty, COVID accentuated, I think, that situation. Um, we were lucky in Europe um, or also worked hard that um, during COVID, we were the only confederations that kept all their competitions alive. Players could still play nowhere else in the world. That wasn't the case. Yet some European leagues did not manage to continue their league. So if you then go and play a country uh, that had that chance to continue to play, of course, the differences are huge. Um, So there are multiple things, I think, that will impact in the end the competitiveness of a format, but in quite, in all honesty, we believe the, the format we had previously was outdated. And um, there was a big, big uh, demand from European stakeholders, from federations, but also players from the media um, to uh, look at a new system. And I've uh, been, you know, we've also been part of a long Women's Champions League process and a long debate with the clubs, which I can tell you was was longer and more complicated three years ago. Uh, But this time everyone was like, on one page, very, very, very aligned as to what they want and which system we should go for. We consulted, and um, yeah, this new format is um, is 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 the outcome of it. And I think uh, it will for sure help to provide European national teams with with better, more competitive matches, whilst giving everyone. And I think that's also the uniqueness of this system. Um, a a chance until the very last minute to qualify to Euro almost to everyone, this wouldn't have been the case with the old system. If you're after match day two or three in an open group stage, uh, if you if you didn't win your match, then you're kind of out because the chances you go to a playoff is, is very low. Um, so we really wanted to create something for everyone, for the big and the small and the middle size. Um, and the new system is, I think, also special because it has other elements to be won within the qualification. You can win a Nations League trophy. We improve the Olympic qualification through it. Um, so more teams now can qualify um, to the Olympic tournaments. I don't know if you know, but previously we um, just the teams that qualified for the World Cup also had the chance to qualify then to the Olympics, which might be questionable if that's fair. So, um, yeah, many, many reasons uh, why to to change and also improve. And of course, in the end, I don't like that word, but also a better product 
hopefully a better chance for federations to say, hey, broadcasters, uh, sponsors, um, please invest into us. Uh, federations still uh, own the rights for this competition. So it's not like the Women's Champions League where rights were given back to us uh, and they're centralized. But in the first cycle, federations will still maintain the ownership. So we hope that it will also uh, bring some value there. I must ask before I let me in, how much more beneficial is a competitive, you know, tournament like Nations League compared to, you know, the friendlies that we see? Well, for me, how can we build a future of women, the future of women's football on friendly tournaments? What What, what is the next step? Sportingly, but also commercially. We always talk about the big numbers in men's football and equal prize money, but yet we have no products that are being invested in or sold to to partners that support that product. So if we all cook our little soup in our own corner and have tiny little friendly terms, they are good. They are also, I don't want to talk down on friendly terms. They were super important, for example, in my times. Um, and they are still important for maybe testing for a final tournament, for getting that team you want to play against that you can't meet in your competition. But long term, it cannot be the solution. People will also not going to watch friendly tournaments. People want to see exciting competitions they can relate to where there's a brand identification behind it. And um, yet, I think um, that was also uh, um, a step-by-step approach. Uh, we have not uh, increased the number of national team matches uh, in in with the with with. Uh, due to this new format. No, in a year, uh, there are 13 national team matches available to women's football national teams. And what happened now is that there's a slight shift from, let's say, uh, less friend, from more friendly matches to less friendly matches to more organized matches. But yet, in women's football, in Europe, they will have approximately 30% of all windows available for friendlies. In men's football, there are zero, um, just so you know the difference also. And we didn't want to go the route down to men's football, but I think um, long term, we need to ask ourselves, how can we build our sport really on a sustainable ground, provide better competitions, better conditions for players? It can't come from a friendly tournament. And then speaking of the football, because we... There are a lot of reports about numbers and attendance and sold tickets and so on, which is great. Uh, it's really great. But let's focus on the football for a while. What do you see in terms of the quality uh, at the football being played at the moment? Thank you so much for asking that question, Mia, because I'm... If I, if with one thing I'm really taking personal and still hurts me with my playing time, then that people like sometimes were more concerned if my jersey fits or, uh, you know, stupid things other than the sport. And this summer at the Euro to watch the team, teams perform at such a high level or the Champions League final, the quarterfinals, the semifinals, the level, the speed. The, the technical abilities, the, the, the physical strengths, it, it was, it was just impressive. And I sat there and I just looked around and was listening to people and everyone honestly was talking just about 
the football and the players as athletes. That is the biggest recognition we can get. And that was not always the case like this. So, yes, we need, unfortunately, still these big numbers, the record attendance, because not everyone is as obsessed with football as you and me or all of us. That's true. But the, the average person that might be just a little bit interested or at least, yeah, follows the game a little bit, a little bit on the periphery will be inspired by reading about this attendance or by that record or by the fact that there are people going to watch women's football matches. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I had people this last year with these crowds who had in the Women's Champions League or the Women's Euro being amazed that there are full stadium. <laughs> so that was not a norm yet for our sport. And I think there were still obviously many doubts is there that this is possible, but it is. And I think that's why we need it also to, yeah, still grasp the attention of the wider public. Um, but it should by no means distract from how great the game is and how fantastic uh, the, 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 the sporting developments are. Well, I think it's time that we talk about why there are so many people at the game because it's great football being played exactly. rather than just using the numbers to get people exactly. to come to the stadiums because the the level at the moment like you, like you said that we are seeing it's it's like a game of chess sometimes you know uh, that is battling out uh, on the pitch so it's it's i think it's it's time uh, for the other stories to be told as well. Completely spot on. Yes. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I think growing up as well, you'd see like going to football games, especially like here in Sweden, you'd see people with, you know, Ibrahimovic on the back, but now you actually see them with maybe Rolfo or Seged or, you know, some of these bigger players. And I think that's exciting to see that development as well, that people are looking up to, to these female footballers. Absolutely. But we've talked about this quick development. Um, and, we have, uh, you know, the, you, you guys, there, there are group stages in, in the Champions League now. Um, but with this quick development, does UEFA consider a format like the, the Europa League uh, on the, on the men's side? Because, you know, they're Sweden, who used to be number one, for example, in the world, the, the league is, is no longer number one and is having a hard time keeping up. So is there like, are, are you guys looking at a Europa League? Or? So, um, first of all, we need to, also, when we create new competitions, make sure that the ones we establish are becoming sustainable, right? I'm talking about sustainable in a way how we deliver them, that they're operationally good. I mean, we're in our second season for the Women's Champions League. It's really everything about this competition has been changed, not just the format, regulations, um, financial distributions, uh, absolutely everything, um, a, a solidarity scheme put behind. So we also need to make sure that our competitions work. But 100% um, now for the next cycle, uh, you know, the Women's Champions League has been um, centralized in a cycle, means it's running until 25. We will look at how can we improve this competition? How can we um, maybe give more access to clubs in Europe? We hear the demands. 
we know uh, of, of the Scandinavian demands. I know about them very well, um, and, and I also understand them. And um, and we need to look at can we do that through a women's Champions League? Different access, uh, different formats, or is there a need for a new competition in the future? I don't know what it will be, but of course we will look at the situation and we would hope that, um, yeah, that we can provide more opportunities generally in Europe. We know it's an important experience, but yet we need to also ask the question back to the clubs who, um, want to play in Europe that it's an additional sporting strain. It's an additional financial strain. You cannot um, expect that, and I'm trying to be realistic, that um, even if we were to create a second-tier competition, you call it Europa League, that that this is directly a success like the Women's Champions League is. So um, we need to be also, and that's my point, realistic. How can we create more opportunities um, are the clubs ready to play in Europe? Are you ready to play Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday? Do you have a squad size that accommodates? So we talk a lot about player welfare. I hope we do that too in a second, but is a different, is a different experience. I can speak from experience as a player, but, and, and through the lens of my club back then, but is, is really, um, clubs and structures and, and, and standards have to get ready for it to, to, to be able to compete. I think maybe we can touch on on player welfare just immediately because there because it seems like whenever these you know the, pe- some people are screaming for for more competition or to broaden the competition or to get like a Europa League but once once there's like oh there's a Nations League and there's competition every here and there and and you know there's a lot of things people also scream for the players welfare and we've seen a lot of columns so um, how do you think like players would be affected of you know because there's there are only so many top tier players that can play for those really really big teams that are going to play season in season out Champions League World Cup Euros blah blah blah. There's only so many players and it takes a toll on their body. So how how do you avoid that? Exactly, and you see it's a complex job. Everyone wants more competitions. The other element I need to mention, and we can also talk about, is the calendar, which is uh, has. Uh, uh, has to be improved uh, in the future and better plans going forward. Um, and are we having the structures to support players surrounding them to play and compete in these competitions? That's a very complex, let's say, environment where everyone has to do their part to make sure we grow all in the same a manner next to each other because uh, you cannot just add games and professional structures and clubs and the national teams remain at uh, the level they are now. Um, so, and yet we can also not just have more games and don't have a better coordinated calendar. So it's all these puzzles really that need to come together for a better, uh, for me, yeah, um, player welfare to protect players players better it doesn't help anything many uh, at the moment point fingers and said yeah you should this this organization do this no i think i think everyone should um my responsibility our responsibility that we can influence is provide better competition represent european interests in front of fifa for a more coordinated calendar 
But yet there are other confederations with completely different needs than ours. So that's the, the that's how these conversations um, go. Um, and then if we if we all do our part, also then clubs and national teams, coaches and players themselves, because these are the only ones that can manage load really themselves. Then I think we improve it. But it's it's like it's really a puzzle. People need to understand it's a puzzle and there are many tools and elements we need to work on more professionally with better resources, with better long term planning um, to, 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 to improve the situation on players who in the end will, will, will feel the load. With that, I have a question for you regarding the fact that you had to quit your career due to injuries and, and we talk mm-hmm. about schedules and development of the game, obviously. But what do you wish would have been available for you as a player during your career that exists now but didn't back then? It's a very good question. Um, I think... In my career, in my times, we were, uh, and the environment I grew up in, we were rather machines, if I'm using that very strong word. Uh, and there was less focus on the individual, on the person, on the human being, but also the athlete. I think the general, the focus on players back then uh, and the support for players is not comparable to today. And it's good that players have a bigger voice and a greater standing and more influence themselves and more um, support. I think if you are injured um, back then as a player, you, yeah, we're, we're often um, often left uh, on your own and you had not many people to turn to. Um, so you were very, very quickly, um, yeah, uh, dependent on yourself um, to help yourself. And I think... Um, I would have liked more, more, more people supporting me with advice, with, with, uh, with medical support, with, with, with just, um, people taking care of you as a person and as a, as a, as an athlete. But back then, I would rather say the collective, um, the club, um, itself was, was, was what was the priority, uh, rather than, um, individual players. We see. These big clubs out in Europe, they're hitting the gas. They're, you know, they're pumping in all sorts of, you know, the broadcasting deals are getting better. The more supporters coming to the games and, you know, things are evolving quickly. What, what happens when these big clubs start hitting that gas? Is it, is it positive? Is it only positive or is there something that could be, you know, slightly negative about it? Well, we all, we want all clubs everywhere to hit the gas, of course, because we need that excitement. We need that investment. We need individual clubs as many as possible in as many different countries as possible in as many different leagues as possible to succeed. That, that's really, really important. You are know that as, as much as I do, the, 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 problem of women's football in the past was a bit, oh, yeah, now Germany is a good country. Now Sweden is a good country. Now the United States is a good country. But at the moment, we feel like there is, for the first time, really a movement in more countries. And that's so important, again, for not just the acceptance of our sport, but to establish a proper profession that becomes sustainable for more than just a few professional top players but for many more. And that parents at the end of the day will say, this is something I'm sending my girl to. Um, so the the influence of the big 
big clubs, we cannot deny is helpful, but um, and their investment as well, but only if it's genuine, only if it's long term, only if it's with a plan uh, that is again sustainable long term. We we don't need people coming in quickly investing and then uh, and then pulling out the year after. I think that's what, what what's really dangerous. It's of course also dangerous for um, for. Um, or dangerous or not easy for traditional women's football clubs who've been uh, driving our past, especially here uh, in Europe, in my country, in, in, in Sweden, and many other countries for so many years with everything they had. That's also why, for example, we through now our men's club licensing regulations, we try to encourage all uh, European clubs to invest in women's football, to either create a section themselves or partner with with a, with a, with a club nearby to support. It doesn't need to be their own club that just comes from a from a let's say traditional big men's football brand as we know it. So we hope that also these clubs can see the traditional women's football clubs can have a future. Um, um, uh, and find good collaborations, but of course, um, it, it is tough to compete with a um, a multi-million um, uh, business that that draws in the end from funding um, that that in the beginning will be generated through their men's team. Speaking of multi-million businesses and the total def- the total opposite, which is I would say maybe. The Swedish clubs, considering me and me are both from Sweden, we obviously want to get a little bit of that Swedish perspective into this. Um, Therese Kogdron, who you're probably familiar with, sporting director of Sydals and Gord, went out and said that actually they go minus playing the Champions League after participating. Um, what would what would Swedish clubs, would you say, and the rest of Scandinavian clubs have to do to to avoid this you know, financial hit? Because you want to play in Europe, I obviously cannot judge uh, the 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 finances of of Therese, uh, and I'm sure she. I have a lot of respect for her. Uh, she's a great person and a great manager. Great successes for her team, um, but uh, it is, I think, also fair to say that the, these clubs at the moment are coming off the first Champions League season where. The minimum starting guarantee was more than what the previous Champions League winner would get. So um, they get 400,000 euros just to be in the group stage. And with every win they, they, they have, they get an additional 50,000, meaning they, they, um, yeah, can, can earn up to 700,000 just in the group stage. So I don't know, uh, uh the detailed situation, the detailed budget. And I, of course, don't want to be, um, judging on the situation, but I do think that 700,000 out of a budget for a Swedish club is a big amount of money. Uh, I do think um, they may have, of course, other sources of income, I hope, different sponsors uh, or broadcasters. Um, but I do think that, um, yeah, that normally it should be possible uh, to, to cover expenses from this amount. And with the Champions League as well, what's the effect of having a group stage in Champions League that you've seen now over these uh, you know, past seasons? Is it successful? It is. I mean, the numbers, uh, again, I'm not overdoing it. Me, I don't look at me in a, in a, in a bad way, but I think the, the attendances and viewing numbers also speak for themselves. But I also do think, um, it's not just the group stage. It's, of course, that stage of the competition where it's centralized, where we can all watch it. 
But we have tried to give more European clubs, again, also with this format access. What people don't focus on at all, what makes me really proud of the Women's Champions League, is 10, we have at least 10 different countries uh, out of 60, and it's a very high proportion if you want to compare that to the Men's Champions League, are from, from, from different countries around Europe. Um, some clubs may argue we would like to have more English teams in there and others may want to have more Germans or the top five. But we said, no, at the beginning of this phase, we want to create a hype across Europe. We want to have a chance for more than just a handful of European countries to make that experience. And um, that's again where, you know, we're trying to strike a balance between let's say elitism, but also solidarity and development. So um, it's been a great success. I think people enjoyed it for sure. We can always improve, but I must give the clubs and uh, a huge compliment. It was not just a big operation for UEFA. It was a big operation for those clubs who deliver those match days the amount of resources they had to put in themselves. You saw there's one big stadium that was opened after the other. That is what women's football clubs have been a huge challenge, but they all pulled up their sleeves. And I think we wanted to create a hype across Europe. We wanted to also, again, make everyone understand, come on, next phase, come on, let's all move forward. And I think that that's that's certainly something we we have achieved. And if there's one other reason why the Women's Euro was so good, it's because the Women's Champions League was so good before, and good domestic leagues, because it for the first time there was some buzz before a final tournament. There was some talk uh, before a final tournament through great domestic moments but also through the Women's Champions League. And I think that regularity is so important for our sport. And you also did manage to have, for this season at least, a couple of first-timers that hadn't played the Champions League before. Exactly. So it's exactly these little things and these moments that, that we are often really happy about. And, 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 and yeah, that, that, that I think it will be an invaluable experience now for Roma to, to, to go all that way. Um, and yeah, that we see sometimes some other clubs come through and, and, and that, yeah, will help them again back in their country. Uh, the Euros is coming up 2025. What Sweden, I think it's Denmark, Finland, Norway, what would you say speaks in favor of those Nordic countries getting, uh, the Euros 2025? Nice try. Uh, I will, of course, not. Uh, speak at all about the bidding process, the bidding process ongoing, that would be um, not at all um, correct for me and I will not. The only thing I can say is that we really have fantastic bidders that are all super, super ambitious, that have a real competition. That in itself is a huge compliment to women's football and our competition. That was not the case uh, for the last year. England was the only bidder. We also need to remember things um, like this, how far we've come, that countries now compete over each other. And um, I'm really looking forward to the decision in, in, in April. And unfortunately, you won't get the answer from me. But you can tell us uh, what, your hope, what your hopes are for the tournament in 2025 after the record-breaking tournament last summer. 
well, next step, bigger and better again. Um, we need to be ambitious. Uh, we will set the bar higher. Um, we will for sure uh, find many areas, although England was great, where we can improve. Um, every women's tournament that comes now around the corner, and I wish FIFA the same, I wish the Women's World Cup the same, this summer needs to be a fundamental success. And um, that's what we will aim for, so for 25. With that being said, Nadine, thank you so much for, for being a part of this podcast and uh, letting us borrow some of your time. No, thank you so much. It was, uh, yeah, very nice chatting to you. And uh, yeah, um, I answered almost all questions. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.